This is the Straight Dope episode 82. Just taking care of some business here. So today I launched the Riflecraft subcast. The subcast is a subscription-only podcast. And that's going to be differentiated from this Straight Dope podcast. Nothing's going to change with the Straight Dope. So after I announce this, we are going to go into an episode as usual where I just talk about things the way I talk about them. And that's that. But the folks that subscribe, they have access to the Riflecraft database. They have access to logging and recording their bullets. They have access to the subcoms, emails, and now an additional layer, which is a podcast that's going to talk about actual specifics. Like we're going to talk about numbers. We're going to talk about gear, equipment, and some of my opinions that are a little bit more targeted and focused. They're going to be training goals and projects, tests, things they can do directly. That's access through the subscription. So it will be emailed to you if you're a subscriber and you'll be able to listen to it. And I think that's pretty cool because I want to be able to give back in a specific way. So it's almost like coaching and, um, and, and it's, it's starting today. So if you're a subscriber or you want access to higher levels of specific training that's targeted towards specific outlets, each episode is going to have a theme, a topic, a training goal, an exercise, and ways to look at and analyze the numbers. And as people give feedback through participating in those, we'll talk about them, or I'll talk about them, and hopefully we'll be able to get to specific targeted ways to measure and set benchmarks towards whatever it is that your particular outlet might be. Now, I realize that you know this podcast has thousands and thousands of listeners, and most of those listeners have outlets that are different from one another. And so I don't, I don't know what you're training for or what you're trying to do with the knowledge that you're developing and growing. And this will allow us to focus on the people that care enough to subscribe and support the podcast. So I'm excited to do that. I finally figured out a way to do that privately and exclusively for those guys. So if you're into it and if you do start subscribing, then you'll gain access to that uh, network of podcast, which is pretty cool. And I'm excited about it. Hopefully through there, I'll also be able to have added layers of discounts to places. Um, but we'll see it as it develops. But I am excited about that. Now, one of the reasons that I felt like it was an important time to do it is I was kind of going through these exercises of trying to visualize stuff. And I started visualizing these rows of dots. And you may have seen it on Facebook where I posted kind of try to visualize like the size of groups. And there's 15 million people that applied for hunting tags this year. And 15 million is a lot. And so laying it out in a grid of dots, try to get perspective on the size of groups. And there's just so many people that have different outlets. It's hard to talk generally enough in ways that are actually helpful towards the types of people that are listening. And the listener body of this podcast is so big that it's not fair to talk about specifically competition unless that's the people that are subscribing. So I want to figure out more about the people that are subscribing and offer them more. And um, that is cool. That motivates me and it keeps things moving in the right direction. There's also a lot of haters out there. And a lot of them, I think, are just haters because, um, you know, they realize that they're in a small pond and... Uh, there's nothing else to do but but to hate, and we can just kind of cut them out and keep going on our paths towards becoming better and better marksmen. So let's talk about a couple of things that are going to help, and 
I've talked about it before, but let's talk about uh, wind and, and using your kestrels because I, I do think that there's some value in having a wind meter. And I, I don't know that, you know, I haven't messed around too much with other types of wind meters. I've been playing with a Doppler one. And if you go to um, some fishing and, and or some sailing websites, you can get these little handheld devices that connect to your phone and they can actually measure the wind speed and direction on these devices and putting out an array on the range. Frank and I have been messing around with it, but the data isn't as um, conclusive as we would like to talk about it openly yet. So I'm just going to talk about some a couple tricks with your Kestrel that can really help you get distance or direction and speed. And this will work for other small devices and, and, and anything that you're doing. But the angle and the speed is very important for you to make a good wind call. So Try this. Grab your kestrel and go outside and face into the wind and try to figure out, you know, exactly what direction it's coming from. And most of us are pretty good within about 15 degrees, but 15 degrees is probably too much error for you to make a really, really good wind call. But if you turn your kestrel sideways with the anemometer spinny, dialy, wheelie thing open, and you turn it perpendicular to the wind, when it's facing straight into the wind, that spinny deal stops spinning. And that'll give you a specific angle into the wind when it's not spinning. And that will reduce your margin of error from 15 degrees to less than 15 degrees error by just saying it's coming from that direction. The seam on the Kestrel can give you a very specific line into it. And so if you can start to refine that process of doing it, I think that it should help your wind calls uh, at least your understanding of the direction that the wind's coming in. And the closer that you can get it to a mile per hour, the more you're going to be able to make informed decisions on that initial wind call. And I think that that has helped me a lot at the beginning of trying to refine my wind process. It's not the be-all, end-all, of course. And obviously the bullet speaks for itself. And a lot can happen between you and the target. But one of the initial things that I see when measuring shooters is that their initial angle is wrong. And so they might get the wind speed correct or the wind speed within parameters that are appropriate. But that actual angle, when they just face into it and say, it's coming from there and I'm shooting this way, so it has to be 2 o'clock, but it might be one thirty, It might be 2.30. And the difference in that 30-minute interval sometimes is about 25%. That 25% error on your wind call could be significant. If you're shooting at a target, that's 2M away, you're making an inappropriate angle change could effectively cut that target size in half, right? By saying, you know, I was off by two and a half to three miles an hour. If the wind's 10 miles an hour, 11 miles an hour. And if you're wrong, your group is now overlapping only with half the target instead of the whole group or the whole craft number, or the whole bracket, or however you're thinking about it. And that's how I think about it anyway. So you're trying to optimize putting your bracket, your shooter bracket, into the target. Hopefully the target's bigger than your shooter bracket. And now refining that down into a wind call does the exact same thing, right? If your error is big, that group size opens up. Not because the group itself necessarily opens up, but it opens up the more error you add to it, so the wind drift. If you're shooting at the distance of your wind number, like if you have a six-mile-an-hour gun at 600 yards, one mile an hour moves it a tenth if you're off. 
So if you're off by three miles an hour, you've effectively moved your group three-tenths for almost a whole MOA to the left or to the right. Or if it's going up and down and you don't catch that up and down, it could widen your group three-tenths or so, right? At least that's the way I'm thinking about it. Now, we're not splitting the hairs to the hundredth of a mil or something like that. We're th- I'm trying to be speaking in blanket terms and blanket statements, but I think it all falls back on you understanding the ballistics of your bullet. So look at your BC, look at your ballistic calculator, look at the effects that wind has at different distances and the angle that it has. And then look at how you're making that initial measurement. If you're doing it in degrees, if you're doing it by clock angle, if you're thinking about wind number, if you're thinking about bracket, if you're just taking somebody's call of three tenths and just kind of going with it like that, think about the effect of being wrong a little bit and where you can take out some of that error. I think that's really important, especially when so much rests on that single shot for so many applications, right? If, if going back to those bullet signs, if there are 15 million hunters, those 15 million hunters, most of them are relying on that first shot and that first shot being good. So a lot rests on that initial wind call, right? Now, some people like to project in and say, well, you know, the numbers that I had for the pistol shooters was like 30,000 shooters and somebody doubled or tripled that for shotgun shooters and the precision rifle shooters at competition is like sub a thousand. And and for some reason, people find that offensive. I, I don't particularly relate to or understand why that would be offensive in one way or another. I like to do things that have small groups of people that do it. In fact, when I started rock climbing, it was a very small population of people that rock climbed um, outside that would make trips to climbing areas around the world. You got to know them. And you could pre- pretty much name off most of the competitive rifle shooters in the precision world, especially like competition dynamic shooters. There's a couple hundred of them. And we all know each other. And it's a cool, tight-knit community. I think it's the same thing for like PRS shooters, except that it's probably you know, a little bit bigger than competition dynamics, maybe two, three, four times that size. But, but you know, I just guesstimated on Sheldon Nalis's data that 600 people about shot four matches. Well, four matches, national matches a year, seems like they're taking it seriously. And so he didn't want to use data from people that shot fewer than four because he felt like that, you know, some people try something once or do one or two if it comes near them, but they don't take it seriously. Like it's not their their thing, right? If it's your thing, four kind of makes sense. And so, yeah, the numbers could be off a little bit if four isn't how you would define it. But but seriously, like 600 people, it's a very small group of folks that, that does a particular niche style of, of shooting. And, and, and if we expand that out to sniper competitions, it's probably, I don't know, equally as big, maybe a little bit bigger because we've got law enforcement and military shooters, people that are into that, you know, or people that just like kind of LARPing and doing that kind of stuff, or, or athletes that like the, the physical side of, of that stuff. But we're still saying that it's a very small group of people that actually prioritize follow-up shots and other things, carrying data from one thing to the next. But it's very, very small, whereas the bigger population, that first shot is very important. And that's why I emphasize the first shot and understanding what goes into that first shot, because Afterwards, follow-up shots really aren't that complicated. And I also don't think that a lot of the very precise... It's not... That stuff is very hard to do. Don't get me wrong. Like, I am very impressed and blown away with the precision and speed that people are able to engage. Small targets, high rep, short time hack, for sure. It's very impressive. Very hard to do. 
And I don't, I wouldn't necessarily call it elite because the group is, is extremely tiny. It's very, very hard to do. But, but in terms of like the bigger, the bigger picture, there's a lot more with that first shot than there are follow-up shots. It's not that complicated. You just have to put a lot of time and money in investing in like the turbo follow-ups and turbo follow-ups are hard to do, but it's very easy to train for. I think you just have to invest time and money in that process, but that process is extremely linear and with time and reps, anybody could get good at it. Whereas that initial wing call, I think it's going to take decades to lifetimes to maybe even not quite getting it right. And so to me, that's fascinating, and that's why I talk about it. And if you don't like to hear what I have to say or my opinions, right, you just turn off the podcast and go back to your whatever you do. And um, that's cool with me. I, I'm really fascinated with that first shot, with the process of setting it up, with the process of making those decisions quickly and accurately, because I think everything else is relatively easy. But 15 million people are putting their time and energy towards hunting. I think that says a lot. And for hunting, equipment matters, understanding you know the, the, the animal that you're hunting, the setup, and the ballistics, and you're investing all of that towards one shot, right? Ideally, you make an ethical shot. It's well-placed. You pick the right caliber. You have the right energy. It's the right distance. And then the work of actually um, harvesting that animal is really fascinating. And I think that that carries over to any discipline, no matter what you do with a rifle. And that's why uh, this tends to be focused on those general principles of marksmanship, investing heavily towards what goes into that first shot. Not that it's not hard to make a follow-up shot. It's just not as hard or interesting, right? It just takes a little bit of, of reps and money. So anyway, Think about how you're using that Kestrel. Think about how you're trying to get the speed and the angle as precise and as accurate as possible because the better your set of data that you start with, I think the better informed and the better decision-making tree you can make after that towards the things that you're doing. So think about it. Think about how you're doing it. Think about whether you're as precise as you want to be and whether it would change the standards of your hit percentage on targets of a specific size and whether it would help you to reduce your wind calling by a mile an hour or your error, your variability, or whether you would benefit from doing something else. To me, what I see is that shooters benefit highly from refining that process of speed, direction, decision-making so they know their wind hold at that distance and that's measurable, it's quantifiable. It's the kind of stuff we do at the unconventional skill assessment, but if you're self-motivated and you're doing it on your own, you can keep track of that and record over time, and you should be able to record and show that you're improving consistently over time. And I think it starts with understanding how to get as accurate an angle and speed as possible off the bat. Um, all right, so let's see. Um, other news, we've got uh, Mile High has a sale going on on ammo where it's 10% off. They can ship ammo anywhere in the country. So if you order ammo from them, it typically is a very competitive price and it's 10% off. And so if you're ordering factory ammo from them for hunting, for competition, for screwing around, for the range, they have loads of it and they're having a sale right now with 10% off. And if you 
I was, you know, I'm I'm in a in a loading project, and right now I'm messing around with six five Creedmoor. I've got one twenty three Cnars. I've got one thirty burgers. I've got one thirty nine Cnars. One forty burgers. I've got one fifty three and one fifty six burgers, or you know, close to one fifty three point five and one fifty six burgers. So I'm screwing around with a lot of different weights. I'm screwing around with N one fifty. I'm screwing around with Reloader sixteen. And I'm screwed around with H4350 for, for those. And I haven't found N160, but when I do, I'll screw around with a little bit of that. I'm trying to get pressure. I'm trying to understand, you know, trying to optimize the speed for the bullet without having pressure signs. And I'm not loading to seating depths. I'm not doing anything fancy. I'm using virgin brass. But what I'm trying to do is find an optimal speed without pressure. So I'm exploring the speed data that people have and the pressure data that's out there in the loading manuals. And I'm trying to find out in realistic terms what's the optimal speed for each bullet and in those optimal zones, which one has the ballistics. Namely for me, I'm really more concerned about wind than I am elevation because I've got a range finder. I I know exactly what the range is, so I don't need to guess on the range. I'm not reticle ranging. I'm not winging it and trying to um, have a flat bullet that can make up for ranging errors at the expense of wind. I want, I want good wind. I don't want it so slow with a heavy bullet that even though it has great wind, it's coming down too fast for me to optimize it. So I'm trying to look in that sweet spot for bullet weight and bullet speed. Frank and I talked about it a little bit. We talk about it all the time. And I'm trying to wrap my head around visually that's why I've been doing these visual things with, with populations and with visual drop charts and numbers with wind, um, because that's curious to me. And then talk to people with reloading experience about what signs they see in the brass with pressure, not just flat primers, but web expansion, shoulder expansion, brass wear, brass longevity, because I really don't want to be pushing the limit of it because I travel. And I think one of the reasons that a lot of competitive shooters load a little bit slower is that when you go from one environment to the other, you can show pressure signs, and those pressure signs can cause problems at competitions or at hunting events or at other things that they didn't necessarily anticipate because the environment you developed the load in was different than the one that you went to. And so I'm trying to steer clear of all of that and see if I can measure and kind of wrap my head around that process. And then ideally perform next year 2023 i have specific goals for competition for myself i'm trying to do four completely different disciplines and perform well across those four completely different disciplines maybe five different disciplines with specific rifles rather than the different rifles that i used last year and a load that is statistically better than the factory ammo that i was shooting the factory ammo i was shooting was pretty good but i want to say okay if i make it this much better measurably, I should be able to quantify a slightly higher hit percentage. And so that's what I'm going after. Nothing crazy, but just enough where it justifies improvement ballistically. Obviously, I'm training, so I'm getting better skill set, but I also want to have a ballistically advantageous load with lower standard deviations and groups that are at least half of an inch uh, from a single position. Right. Not, not, I'm not talking about my craft number or my craft bracket. I'm just saying like the load itself has to shoot half an inch and the standard deviations have to be under eight. And if it can do that, then it's better than most of the factory ammo I was shooting last year. And therefore, 
I should not have to worry about uh, the hand loads. And so that's kind of where I'm starting at. Now, last year I was talking about fundamentals, fundamentals, and that if you have good fundamentals, you should be able to apply it on any rifle system. So I shot multiple gas guns and I, I, I shot 10 rifles last year at these 13 competitions that I went to. So 10 different rifle setups. Now, it wasn't 10 completely different rifles because um, I don't have 10 rifles. So I borrowed a couple and I changed the barrels and the chassis and the scopes such that I kind of had different combinations of them. So 10 different rifle setups with barrel weight, chassis, scope options. And, um, I, you know, it was like six actions and, and then two gas guns and then two borrowed rifles. And so that was just to show like, you know, I feel like I can grab any rifle and drive it just as well as anything else. And that rifle weight wasn't really the determining factor. It was like an average skill set. I feel like I performed very consistently regardless of the rifle setup in the disciplines that I shot at. This year, I don't want to do that. I have one for each of the four disciplines or each of the five disciplines. If, if I do one as a team and an individual, it may or may not have a different rifle. But now it's going to be optimized for performance. I think loading is going to be part of that. Not that you can't do it with factory ammo, because I absolutely think you can. But for me to measure it and to say one way or the other, I just think it'd be fun to try. So I'm going to try it and see where it goes. I'm going to report those findings on here. I'll be talking about like how it's going. But on the subcast, I'm going to be talking about the specifics that I'm learning and the specifics that I'm testing. And I understand a lot of you are probably experts at reloading and you have lots of ideas. That's cool. I'm going to be sharing my findings. And if you email me and share your thoughts, I may or may not... Um, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. You know, this is kind of my journey and I, I like to share it. But um, that doesn't mean I'm going to be doing it right. It just means I'm going to be sharing the process there. And I'll be talking about numbers and specifics on the subcast because that's a forum that's a little bit more intimate and exclusive. And I feel a little bit more comfortable talking openly about the things that I'm doing amongst a group of people that are investing uh, themselves towards uh, the process and not just you know people all over the world kind of just randomly uh, listening in. So anyway... Um, I've got a couple more interviews that are about to drop, and I think they're pretty cool. They're from diverse shooters, so I've got military shooters, I've got professional shooters, I've got veteran um, people that, that have spent decades or the majority of their life working with firearms. I've got hunters that have traveled the world uh, hunting specific uh, trophy animals. And so I think that those kinds of perspectives are really nice and they're fun to hear about because they're perspectives that you and I probably don't have in the same way. And so it's cool to hear about other people's uses and applications and goals and pursuits using some of the same equipment and some of the equipment that's completely different because the mindsets are different. So uh, those are about to drop. And uh, as usual, I'm going to continue talking about fundamentals here and goals, applications and mindsets, as well as, um, you know, talking about books and posts and things that, that we see uh, happening. But this is kind of the end of the season for everybody. You know, hunting is happening now. Most of competitive shooting is more or less over. And so until January kicks back in, um, you know, we'll just be see, see what's happening. So, um, 
Till next time, and if you really feel like supporting the podcast, uh, go over to riflecraft.com and get a subscription, and you can start listening in to the subcast. Till then.